0: Well, good morning, Creekside. You know, for those of you that don't know me, my name's um, Steve, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And you know, with I'm I'm feeling comforted because I'm feeling a little discombobulated myself. But with like all of our calendar like like questions and forgetting lyrics, wherever we are in the song, I'm fitting right now. I feel more comfortable because. uh, (laughs) But but if you know if, yeah, thank you it's a, it's going to be a scary day if the if, if Hannah doesn't get the calendar thing straightened out cuz i'll like uh, i'll completely melt down so the uh, anyway if you don't know that's an inside joke about i have this weird issue around calendars if you didn't know that i'll just confess i'm Steve i have calendar problems um yeah Anyway, we are in John chapter nine this morning, and uh, we've been, as a church, we've been studying through John chapter nine. Last week, if you missed it, I I, I feel sorry for you because um, Tomasz, who is a pastor in the Czech Republic that we support, was here last week, and he preached to us last week, and he and Nella like played on our worship team, and it was just a, a great time with them and. Two weeks ago, we were in John chapter 8. Dave finished up John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, you know, Jesus kind of kicked off that chapter with this statement that he was the light of the world. And the, the Jews kind of like weren't tracking with him. And, and Jesus just kept upping his game until the very end where like, and Dave talked about this two weeks ago, where, where Jesus says, you know, before Abraham was born, I am you know, and the, the reality of that is that Jesus just wasn't using poor grammar because he failed kindergarten. Like, okay, some people, like, have appreciated that. That side of the room, you guys, I don't know about the rest of you. He wasn't just using bad grammar. He was making the point from Genesis, I mean, from Exodus chapter three, that he is the preexistent God who is the covenant God of his people, who is the one who, like, delivers them from slavery. You know, Jesus, Jesus has been making like these like audacious claims over the last few chapters that we've looked at, and here in chapter nine, he's going to he's going to continue to press against the 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 Jewish leaders and the and the people in Jerusalem. And you know, as I was looking at this chapter, we're going to cover the entire chapter today. It's because it's this big story. And um, as I was looking at the chapter, I realized it's kind of like a topographical map. Like any any map people in here that just like love maps. Well, a topographical map is a map that has all those little lines that shows the contour of the land, if you know how to read it. And I love backpacking. And one time I was in, I was backpacking in this great Smoky Mountain National Park down in Tennessee. And, uh, and this was like in the late 80s, I guess. And, and um, I know it's hard to believe I'm that old, but um, <laughs> late 80s, before the internet where you could look things up. And I show up at Smoky Mountain National Park and I go to the ranger station to to like get a map you know, so I can plan my trip. And, and it turns out you have to, like, back then anyway, you probably still do, you had to actually, before you could go on the trail, you had to get a permit that, that like identified like where you were going to like camp each night. And so I looked at this like map that didn't have any topographical lines on it, and I was like, okay, I wanna create a loop for myself. And so I created this loop for myself that I was going to walk, and it was the most miserable backpacking trip. Like I was either going like straight up or straight down the entire time, and uh, it was the most miserable like backpacking trip I ever had. and uh, Well, maybe second most. There was one with apocalyptic mosquitoes, but we won't get into that. It's... I mean, seriously, it was right on the book of Revelation. It was like... And this chapter's like that. This chapter's like a topographical, not like my backpacking trip. Um, this tra- this chapter is like a topographical map because it it, all, it it's going to point us to Jesus. It's going to tell us where we need to go because Jesus said, "I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life." Like he's it, it points us towards Jesus. It tells us our final destination. But there's a lot of details in here. In fact, most of the chapters, not even like Jesus is even on the scene. But what that, what that part of the chapter does is it tells us the contours of the land of what it might look like to follow Jesus. And, it, and in so doing, by revealing that to it, it also speaks to us about what kind of people we need to be if we're going to follow him. So it points us to Jesus. It reveals to us like what it might look like to be one of his disciples. And in so doing, kind of exposes like some things that need to be happening in our hearts if we're going to faithfully follow him. You know, a chapter is going to break out into three main sections. In verses 1 through 7, we're going to see Jesus talk about the works of God. In verses 8 through 34, we're going to see a whole bunch of people walking in the dark. And then in verses 35 through 41, we're going to see the work of Jesus. So please stand with me. I'm going to read just that first section this morning. um, And then I'll pray, and then we'll get into our study together. This is God's word for his church, John chapter 9. And as he passed by... He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world." When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the work of Jesus Christ and the work of your Holy Spirit who opens up our eyes to see the truth and our minds to understand it and our hearts to apply it. And so, Father, I just ask that your spirit would work this morning to um, to nourish us and call people out of darkness and delight and and reveal your son to us pray these things in Jesus name amen you can be seated you know as we get into this first section you know, this story happens sometimes after the events of John chapter 8 obviously but but like uh, clearly because I just read it you know there Jesus keeps talking about the light of the world so so he's wanting us to keep in mind this fact that he claimed to be light. And there's this idea of light that passes all through this chapter because there's this man who was born blind. From the very first day he came into this world, this man has lived in complete darkness. He had no ability to see. Uh, apparently, he's, he's older now and he's a beggar on the side of the road. We'll, we'll discover that later in the chapter and and as Jesus and the disciples were walking by, it prompts a theological discussion, which is interesting, you know, of all the things to, to care for the guy that's you know, blind, you, you just to debate theology, but whatever. Um, the disciples asked Jesus the question, like, hey, whose fault is it that this guy was born blind? Is it his own fault or is it his parents' fault? You know, it's an interesting question because I think what it reveals to us is it reveals something to, well, for sure, it reveals something about the disciples' worldview. But I think the disciples aren't all that different from us. It reveals something about, like, our own worldview that we like to, like, slip into. You know, there's this reality that, like, when we see calamity befall somebody, we instantly try to explain it away as, like, well, I kind of knew that was coming because, right? (laughs) Or... Well, if only they would have listened to Somebody's laughing back there. They've said this before apparently. Like and we have this like we have this thing that just lives in our spirits where we always want to associate blame on somebody. If if calamity befalls somebody, it must be their fault somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Too many parties. We're going to cancel a party after that, so It must be their fault somehow. But then this guy proposed a problem because he was born blind, so it's not like he had done anything. And so they're like, well, maybe it's his parents' fault. You know, and Jesus answered them, and wasn't, wasn't it wasn't his fault or his parents' fault, but it was so the works of God could be displayed in him. It's so that God, in doing what God does, could work in this guy's life and transform him and, and reveal something about who he is to people. But before we move into that, I want to just speak a little bit about that that desire to always kind of associate blame, because I think underneath it, there's this thing in our spirits that says, if I can just do the right things, if I can just eat the right food, if I can just like, I don't know, exercise enough and be good enough and do this and this and this and this and this, this, then, then I can avoid all calamity. Because we always we like to delude ourselves into thinking that if we just do the right things, we can like control that that something bad won't befall us. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. And it kind of puts us on this never-ending treadmill of like doing stuff. And now that like the, the internet, like I'm I'm so thankful I grew up in the 80s, right? Like, now that the internet's there, there is a never-ending stream of all the stuff you have to do to make sure calamity doesn't befall you. Right? You know, if you're a parent, you know, I've, I've joked with my own kids about this. If you're a parent, like, well, they say that you have to do X, Y, and Z, and if you don't, then calamity will befall you. If you're whatever, and, and we put ourselves on this never-ending treadmill of trying to control all of the circumstances in our life and trying to avoid anything bad happening to us, and, and it just drives us crazy, and it just wears us down, And then when something bad does happen to us, we're like, see, God, I did everything I was supposed to do. And like, you just let me, like, let this happen to me? You know, and in one sense, the disciples' instincts were somewhat good because like the, the blindness and sickness and calamity, all of that is a result of sin that's fallen over. See, something bad just happened to me. All of that's a result of sin that's fallen over the world. And several weeks ago, I talked about like little s sin, that personal sin that we engage in and capital S sin, which is this sin that's this power over the world. And, and what the disciples made the mistake is like understanding that like sickness and, and calamity as a result of like our rebellion against God and what we invited into this world it doesn't mean you can always make a one-to-one correlation between, like, hey, something happened to Randy, so it must be that Randy. Yeah. Right? What's that? Should have listened. listened to Bill. Yeah. So <laughs> this is the most interactive you've been. So apparently, I'm on something here. <laughs> a bunch of judgmental people. but I think what Jesus is going to show us in this story is that we aren't to live in a constant state of control, trying to do everything perfectly, trying to avoid the sorrows of this world. Instead, we're to have this posture of humility and dependence and trust and look to Jesus as the light of the world and the one whom, if we follow him, we will have the light of life. It's not about like performing so well that you can control all of your outcomes. It's about living this life of, post- of this posture of like humility, dependence, and trust on the Lord. And it's exactly what Marv talked about at the beginning of the worship set today, that God actively is involved in the lives of his children to make sure that whatever circumstances come your way, that whatever circumstances come your way, he's going to turn them for good. He wants us to be a people who trust him, not a people who drive ourselves crazy trying to control. And what he's going to do is he's going to show that he can, he can like do that for this man. But he says something else that's really interesting to his disciples in verse, um, in verse 4. Don't worry, we'll get through the story. But in verse 4, Jesus says this, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day Night is coming when no man can work. It's interesting what Jesus is saying because all throughout John so far, Jesus has been talking about the work that the Father has sent him to accomplish. But here, right before he moves in to heal this man, he declares that we all, he's talking to his disciples, must do the works of him who sent Jesus. He's inviting the disciples to join him in the work. And then he goes right into healing this person. And so what what John's revealing to us and what Jesus is revealing to us is this miracle that he's about to do is more than just this miracle for this guy. It says something to all of us about this mission that we are all called into to be about like, this work of revealing Jesus as the light of the world. And Jesus even hints towards his own crucifixion because the night is coming, he says, when no man will work. He's, he's telling his disciples, there will be a day when darkness will fall over all the land and you think all hope is lost and you won't be doing anything. But that day won't, he doesn't say this here, but we know from the stories of the scriptures, that day doesn't last forever. Jesus raises from the dead, he ascends to the Father and he gives his Holy Spirit and the gift of his Holy Spirit allows us to continue his work. But here, he's telling his disciples, man, you're invited into this work that I'm about to accomplish. So learn something from what I'm about to show you. And then he spits on the ground. He makes mud. He puts it on the guy's eye. And then he says, go to Siloam and wash," which was a pool quite a ways away from from probably where he was at. And and, uh, so he sends the guy off. And it says the guy went to Siloam and he washed and he came back seeing. Like Jesus heals this man. This man who was born in darkness is now able to see light. His whole like life has opened up to him. And, and, and Jesus invites his disciples into that same work. You know, in that... That work just over and over again. I just want to re- reinforce what Jesus came to do, right? It's in John 8, 12. I've, I've referred to it multiple times. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is like, I am the one that's going to restore life. I'm the one that can like relieve all of your anxiety about all of that control. I'm the one that can like display my works in you and for you and give you life. You just need to follow me as the light. And as his followers, we're called to help people see that as well. So the guy comes back seeing, and, then, and so now he's, he's seeing, and he comes back, and, and most of the chapter, starting at verse eight all the way through the verse 34, Jesus steps off the scene, because there's two things that happen. By the guy like going to Siloam and washing, you know, it almost seems like a little bit cruel of Jesus, like, okay, you're blind. Put mud on your eyes. This is like the survivor challenge. Like try to make it to Siloam, right? So the dude's like groping his way, stumbling along all the way to Siloam, washes, all of a sudden sees. But it allows Jesus to slip off the scene. So now Jesus kind of disappears. And this guy's never even seen Jesus yet. And he comes back and he starts to engage all these different people. Look what happens in verses um, 8 through 12. Says the neighbors, therefore, and those who were, who previously saw him as a beggar, were saying, "Is not this the one who used to sit and beg?" And others were saying, "This is he." And still others were saying, "No, but he is like him." And he kept saying, "I am. I am he, or I am the one." Therefore they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? And he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. So it's interesting. The first response that we have as this man comes back and he's talking to his neighbors and his probably his family and his And those that used to go by, like where he used to always sit and beg, they're all like, man, this looks like the dude who was always blind that I've seen every single day for like years and years. And so there's this curiosity that's evoked. I think sometimes when the work of God happens in someone's life or when we display the works of God, like this man is, like a lot of people can have some curiosity about Jesus, and, they, and then this curiosity led to debate, like, oh, this guy was the guy that's born blind. And they're like, no, he just looks like him. And then he kept saying, no, I'm really the guy. They're kind of groping around, trying to figure it out. And, and, and uh, they, they finally say to him, okay, well, then how do you see? And he, he retells the story, just real straightforward sort of guy. He retells the story. And then they're like, well, here's Jesus. And he's like, I don't know. That's the end of his interaction with his neighbors. like It's interesting. Like I think it's possible to be curious about the things of God and be curious about the work of God in someone's life and even be curious about the claims of Christ and to even debate those things somewhat, to talk to your friends about them, but then never get up and go looking for Jesus. They just kind of like drift off the scene at this point in time. Their curiosity never bore any fruit because they didn't do anything with it. Like, what is it going to take? You know, like, they—they they doesn't say they went and found Jesus. They didn't go looking for him. They just go like, oh, okay. In fact, we're going to see that they did something else. You know, if you're here this morning and you're at all curious about the work of God and what Jesus can accomplish for you, like, I just want to challenge you to actually seek him. Don't just talk to people about him. Don't just talk to all of your friends. It's like a whole group of people kind of groping around in the dark trying to figure it out. Like seek him in the pages of scripture. The, the word of God like promises that if you earnestly seek him, you will find him. Don't just give up your curiosity because it seems unpopular or unlikely. Seek him. But these people were curious and look what they did instead. It's interesting. Um, starting in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. So let me just stop there for a second. You know, the the Pharisees were those guys that were like the masters of like control. They were the ones that said, if we can just keep all the rules then God will bless us. God will keep us secure. Like God will like, re, like, and so they, they not only tried to keep all the rules, but they made rules about how to keep all the rules. And I'm not joking about that. Like they were like the masters of like trying to control everything. And for whatever reason, like all those guys, friends and neighbors are like, oh, let's go to like these religious leaders who are like into like keeping all the rules and see what they have to say. So they bring this man to him, and then the and it's interesting. Verse fourteen. That was the Sabbath on the day that Jesus made the clay and opened their, his eyes. You know, there's been lot, There's lots of discussion about why Jesus made the clay. You know, I heard, I was reading stuff about well, him spitting in the clay symbolized his like fluids and how fluids make somebody unclean. But like certain people can make it was just super confusing. I was like, whatever. <laughs> I. The one, the one that might have some merit to it, I think, is that like by spitting in the clay and forming the clay, like there's this, there's this like allusion back to Genesis chapter two when God formed man out of the dust of the ground and, and gave him life. But I think the answer is a lot simpler. It's in verse 14. It was the Sabbath on the day he made the clay. Remember this? Dun, dun, dun. The Pharisees are so uptight about keeping the Sabbath uh, that their rhythms of life and their rhythms of rule keeping always revolved around this Sabbath day thing. That the Jesus, by spitting in the ground, I don't think the spitting was, but by, by forming, by making mud and by applying it to his eyes and actually healing him, he broke at least two, if not three, of the extra rules that the Pharisees had put on to, to, uh, to try to like, control their, their life with God. Like Jesus, I think this is why he made the clay. Jesus intentionally wanted to break the Sabbath rules. He intentionally, like he intentionally, interrupted their rhythms of life that they were so comfortable with. He intentionally interrupted their their control over over uh, th- their outcomes that they thought that they had and firmly planted himself in their path of religious, planted himself in the path of their religious self-righteousness so that they were forced to make a decision about what to do with him. If he would have just healed the guy, they would have been like, oh, cool, he's healed. But no, Jesus broke the Sabbath. He made clay. He needed, which was against the rules. He applied it to his eyes, which was against the rules. And it even says it's against the rules to heal somebody unless it was life-threatening. It was was one of the rules, so that, that was the potential third one that he broke. The Pharisees here are just, are, are, are now forced with a decision about what are they going to do with Jesus. So I think I, there's something here for us, I think, because oftentimes we look at how, like... Well, what Jesus does here, I think he does for each and every one of us. How often does, does God allow something into our life that interrupts the rhythms of our life, that interrupts the, our like, assumptions about way things should go, to plant himself fairly, firmly in our path, to kind of force this decision upon us graciously, force this decision upon us, well, what are we going to do with Jesus right now, today, in this moment, when I'm faced with this thing? and what we know of, and what we've already talked about is that if, if we follow Jesus, like, that's where life is. But he, he brings us to this point of decision. Whatever you might be faced with today that, does, that has interrupted your rhythms of life, that has interrupted, like, the way you think things should go, that has interrupted your sense of, like, control, maybe God is, like, graciously trying to, like, wrench those things from your grip so that you can see Jesus so that he can enlighten you, so that you can follow him and have the light of life. I wonder how many times when we encounter something like that, we just throw up our hands, get angry at God and like, go seek comfort someplace else. And like the Pharisees just fail to like see Jesus for who he is, respond to him for what he's accomplished. And we just continue to grope around in the dark, like blind people. Well, the story goes on with the Pharisees, and you can see some of this play out. Uh, it's in verse um, verse 15. Again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said, you see there, that emphasis on how? Like, it was all about the methodology. Like, did he make clay or did he not make clay? Like, Right. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was division among them. So you have these two groups of people. You have like the rule followers, like, oh, like he broke the Sabbath. There's no way he could be from God. Right. And then you have the pragmatic people. Well, like this dude like was blind and now he sees like maybe he is from God. Right. So there's the and then it says there's this division. There's this division among them, which I think is another response. This shows us little contours of the land. Sometimes when, when like, we display the work of God in our own life before other people, sometimes it's met with like, curiosity like it did for the neighbors. Sometimes it's met with division. like People will argue about it. Story goes on. They couldn't come to a solution. So somebody came up with this idea um, in verse, verse 18. Oh, verse 17. So they asked the guy, they said, therefore, to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, well, he's a prophet. So they asked the guy and he's like, oh, he must be a prophet. He's from God. Verse 18. The Jews, therefore, did not believe it of him because that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he shall speak for himself. So everything we know about this guy is that everybody that asks him how you see, he tells what? Well, there's a guy named Jesus, made mud, put it on my eyes, like I washed, now I can see. Like his neighbors knew that story, his is the people that begged that he that saw him begum him knew the story? The Pharisees knew the story. I'm guessing his parents knew the story, and yet his parents are like, "Don't ask us. We don't know." Right? Like, here's this response to like the work of God in his life. Where we're just going to distance ourselves from him because of some reason. We don't know. He's a grown man. Ask him. And and the reason is given to us there in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be the Christ, he should, he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So the Jews had already like passed judgment. They had already like spread the word that if you, if you confess Jesus to be the Christ, that's not his name, that's his title. The Christ means the Messiah, the hope, the, the hope of this world, the promised one from, from ages past. If you believe that Jesus is that guy, you're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. The synagogue was like the, the Jewish version of church. You know, it's an interesting thing because in that, in that uh, like highly religious society, if you were kicked out of the, the synagogue, it was a big deal. You would, There would be shame upon you. There would be exclusion upon you. There would be, like, condemnation upon you. All of your neighbors would look at you like, oh, he's the guy that got kicked out of the synagogue, right? You know, sometimes the response to, like, God's work in someone's life is, is threats and trying to use fear and intimidation. The contours of the land that we walk as disciples of Jesus isn't always promised to be smooth. And the parents, like... Just distance himself from their kid. Kind of just throw him out there. Oh, just ask him. We don't want anything to do with it. And this guy, who his life just tra- like dramatically changed for the better, now has like the religious leaders on his back. Has his neighbors like arguing about him. Has has his parents like peace. You know, we're out. He's kind of left all alone. Pharisees still haven't figured it out. Verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So finally they've reached an agreement, right? Right. We know this man is a sinner. And they really don't have any other conclusion. If they're going to say that anybody that confesses him to be the Messiah is going to get kicked out of the synagogue, then they have to acknowledge that all those things Jesus is claiming, being the light of the world, being the one who can quench our thirst, being God himself, being the heir of David, like all of these things. Jesus like planted himself in their path, forced a decision. And the one thing that they agree about is this man is a sinner. And they say, give glory to God. They're not saying, hey, so give God credit for your healing. What they're saying is like, do the right thing, honor God, and agree with us that this man's a sinner. Is kind of what they're getting at. Like we all know, and we're all the religious leaders, we all know that this man's a sinner. So do the right thing and agree with us. Verse 25. He therefore answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, I now see. They said therefore to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. That's exactly what Jesus said in the text that Dave preached two weeks ago. They just can't hear, right? Why do you want to hear it again? And I love this guy now because he he gets a little bit feisty. You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? He's had enough, like, right? Like, I can finally see, and you're just dragging me around to all these religious, like, inquisitions? Like, give me a break. I've told you already. You don't want to become it. A... Then they were saying to, um, oh, what verse am I on? 28. And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. What they're saying is like, hey, we're Jews. We follow Moses. We know that God spoke through Moses. So we're going to bank on Moses. You like dirtbag, you follow Jesus. But we're disciples of Moses and we don't even know where this Jesus guy came from. Like we don't know what sort of authority he has. We know that Moses spoke with God's authority. And the guy gets even feistier. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing. (laughs) I mean, he's digging in. I love this dude. Here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What he's saying there isn't like, you know, if you were going to like distill down this guy's like speech there for like perfectly theologically correct, it's not perfectly theologically correct. Like there's false prophets, like, you know, Pharaoh's servants like turn their staffs into sticks. You know, there's false prophets that do miracles and stuff. But the, the essence of what he's saying is, it's pretty interesting. Like he said, he tells the Pharisees, well, we know y'all have been teaching us that if you do all the right things, God's going to hear you and he'll do what you ask. And this guy like wanted me to be healed and I'm healed now. So you don't know where he's from, but based on the rules of what you claim to know, you should probably give him some credibility because I was blind. Now I see. Right? Look at their response. They get actually pretty cruel. You were born entirely in your sins. Like they passed judgment on that theological question that the chapter started with. Oh, the reason why you were blind from birth is because you're a sinner. You were born entirely in your sins. And are you teaching us? We're the dudes that have done all the right things our whole lives. We were never blind. And they cast him out. Here's some of the other shape of the land. Sometimes what it means to have God do his work in you and follow Jesus is that sometimes like you experience rejection and isolation and ridicule. And what did they say? That they reviled him. So far, it doesn't paint like a super pretty picture of like what it means to follow Jesus. The best response was the neighbors who responded with curiosity, but then it quickly went downhill. To the point where now he's kicked out, and he's you know he was uh, he was excluded probably before from the the world like the life of the the community because he was blind, and now he's excluded because he can see, and everybody else around him ironically is just groping around in the dark trying to figure things out. But I want to go back to something he said because I think it's really important for us um, when he responded to the the disciples, and I'm trying to think of where it is. It's in verse 25. His first answer when they brought him back for his second inquisition. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. Like this man, there was lots of things he, he didn't know about Jesus. He had never even seen him with his own eyes. He didn't know what he looked like. He didn't know a whole lot about him. He doesn't know if he's a sinner or not. But then he says this, one thing I do know. One thing is incontrovertible Fact. One thing that has been like burned into my like experience, one thing that I can that has changed my life forever, one thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. And because of that, like he was willing to suffer all of those things, like he he was unyielding on that story. I was blind, now I see. I was blind, now I see, and he gets kicked out of the synagogue, he gets isolated from the community of Israel, and he's all alone but he was blind but now he sees one thing he knows so here's my question to all of us like what one thing do we know that we would like entrench in on that would be so unyielding on that we would that our parents could like forsake us our neighbors could just like do whatever we could be excluded from like, the community that we're in and be left all alone. What one thing do we know? And He was like, I was blind, but now I see. do you believe in the work of Jesus Christ that he is the light of the world and he, and he who follows Jesus will not walk in darkness but have the light of life so deeply that you would give up everything for that? Jesus talks about it in multiple places. In, in uh, Matthew chapter, I'm not, I don't even know where I'm at in my notes. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. This, the, his kingdom, his, the, the being in the place of his reign and his rule and following him, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. He's like, if you were to know what like, life is offered to you in Jesus and in, in his kingdom, you would sell everything you had so that you could be a part of that. What one thing do you know that you would give up everything for? He goes on, another illustration. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's what this guy was doing. One thing I know. This guy healed me. I was blind, but now I see. I don't know a lot, but I know that. do we believe in the work and the, and the person of Jesus Christ so deeply that we could do the same thing? And if not, and there's like layer after layer after layer of like false gods that we've put up in our hearts that we just need to like let God graciously rip away from us by interrupting our life and giving us that opportunity to come to him again and again and again. Hebrews 13. The writer of the book of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 13, no, not 13, Hebrews 10. 10? There it is. Hebrews 10. It's interesting that he uses the word enlightened, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, once you could see, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. I don't have it in my notes. I can... Next slide. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Did you hear that? Being able to see now like caused you to either personally become a public spectacle like the blind man did or kind of secondarily by caring for those people, like suffering. And he goes on. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Did you hear that? Man, I'm so glad that they took my house. Why? knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. This one thing I know, right? I was blind, now I see. I'm following the light, of, the light of life and he will lead me into his kingdom. So you young people, like you guys are gonna need to figure that out, right? What one thing do you know? Are you gonna follow Jesus? Are you going to like live this life of humility and dependence and trust on him? Or are you just going to keep like veering off into all these things and groping around in the dark and not like know the light of life? Well, this guy's not left alone. Verse 35, and I'll just go through this quickly. I'll read 35 through the end of the chapter. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world and th- that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to him, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. So here we have it. Jesus goes up to the guy and he says, do you believe in the son of man? The guy doesn't even know who Jesus is at this point because remember, he's never seen him. That word son of man is this loaded term that, that speaks to Jesus, like speaks to the one, the promise, like coming king, the one who's going to establish God's kingdom on the earth, the one who's going to judge the nations with equity and justice and righteousness, and the one who's going to reestablish God's good and gracious rule over his people. And Jesus is like, do you believe in the son of man? And the guy's like, well, who is he? And Jesus says, you can see him. You're looking at him right now now. And the guy says, I believe, and it's crazy, and he falls down and worships him. Jesus doesn't deflect that worship because he is the I am. He allows this guy to worship him, and this worship is probably the purest worship like this guy's ever, like anybody around has ever seen because this guy is completely committed to Jesus, holding nothing back. He worships him. And then Jesus makes this statement, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. This is where we we know for sure that Jesus is using this blindness thing as somewhat metaphorical. He says, I've stationed myself in this world and kind of forcing this decision upon me so that the blind can see and the seeing can become blind. And then the Pharisees are like, it's interesting, Pharisees are lurking around, apparently still. So they overheard him tell the man that, and they're like, well, we're not blind too, are we? And Jesus' response to them is like, if you, what does he say? Yeah, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but if, but since you say we see, your sin remains. What he's saying, if, if you were willing to acknowledge your blindness and like come to me for light, then you would then you would, like, your sin would be taken care of like this man did. But because you say you, you see, your sin remains. Like it remains upon you. Like this judgment that's coming on the world will, will rest upon you and you will pay the consequence of that sin that remains. And what Jesus is telling us is, like, there's, there's this one main, like, quality that we, that, that's required for us to be able to say with that blind man, I was blind, but now I see. And it's to acknowledge our own blindness and come to Jesus. And if we say, like, no, I've got it figured out. I've got this right set of rules. I've got this right set of things to do. If I just do these things, like, my life will be okay. No. Truly, being able to see comes from acknowledging that you're blind. And if you acknowledge you're blind, and come to Jesus, you can like experience the light of life and and uh, be freed from your sin. You know, so Marv, why don't you come up? You know, all of us have entered this world born blind. Not any, none of us were born in this world able to spiritually see. The scriptures talk about that over and over again, that we were blind, we were dead. It talks about how we were, we were entered this world like dead in our trespasses and sins. And if you're out there thinking that like you're, you're, you've got it figured out and you're going to be able to like, you know, perform well enough to, to secure not only the good outcomes for this life, but the next one, you are still blind and you are still in your sins. And what Jesus is saying is like, no, you need to have the humility and the, to, to recognize like your blindness and come to me for life. And listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you hear that? Like he says, he says that Christ is the image of God and we're blinded to see Christ for who he is. And that's interesting expression, the image there, because it tells us two things. It tells us that Jesus is the one who perfectly reveals the father to us. He's the control C of God. But it also tells us something about us because each and every one of us were made in the image of God. And yet that image has become marred through our rebellion against God and that Christ is points us the way back to life the way God intends us that even but we were blind and we can't see the gospel of the glory of Christ but listen to what it says verse 5 for we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as lord and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus sake for God who said light shall shine out of darkness as the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ it's the work of God. Like, it's the work of God to open blind eyes. It's the work of God to, to speak light into our hearts so that we can see who he is. And so there's a couple things. Like, first of all, if, if you're like at this place and the Spirit's revealing to you that you are blind and dead in your sins, man, call out to Jesus for healing like, turn to him in in trust and dependence and faith, knowing that he paid the penalty for it all on the cross for you. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you see, because he, the one who said, light shall shine out of darkness, like shone in your heart. That should give you this depth of humility before other people. It's not because you were smarter. It should give you this depth of, like, devotion, like this blind man, like I was... I was blind, but now I see, and he falls down, and he worships Jesus. It should give you this devotion and this resolve to follow him, like um, even if it means like you're cast out. This one thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. Marv, why don't you close this, Then I'll close this in prayer.